0: If you are new to this series, you're coming in on the middle of a conversation around a question that I think is a powerful question. It creates so much conversation. It's created a lot of good conversation around our church and around the, our community over the last few weeks. Uh, and it's a question that everybody has an opinion on. I'm sure you will too. We've been talking for the last few weeks about this question, who needs God? Who needs God? And so today we're going to take a turn in the discussion a little bit. So as we go through this, if you haven't been tracking with us and you're thinking, boy, I wish I had more context or I feel like I need to fill in some gaps, you can do that. You can catch up on the series. All you have to do is go to our website, journeycalway.com. You can find all of these messages, the video, the audio, links to you know subscribe to the podcast, however you want to consume this. But you can go catch up, and hopefully you will do that because this series certainly deserves a little bit of all of our attention because this question... Is so, so powerful. Basically, if you're new, I'll try to catch you up here in about two minutes. Uh, We have been talking in this series. This series is designed for a very unique audience. It's designed for those of you who are stuck in the middle. At least you feel like you're stuck in the middle, maybe. In other words, you have walked away from Christianity or church or faith or your view of God because it was unappealing. Maybe it was unsettling. Maybe what was presented to you was something that just didn't seem to hold up under the adult pressures of life. And so you walked away from church or you walked away from faith. You didn't necessarily stop believing in God, but you walked away from embracing God or pursuing God. And yet at the same time, if you're stuck in the middle, you're stuck there because you don't want to embrace the other alternative, which is atheism. To believe that we're nothing more than biology, chemistry, and physics, well, that leads to some unsettling and some unappealing conclusions. And for most people, they don't want to embrace that either. And so there you are, you don't want to turn to to your left and go back this direction but you don't want to go right and go this direction so you just feel stuck in the middle and the good news is you are not alone you are part of the fastest growing group of people in America researchers call you the nuns n-o-n-e-s 23% of all Americans 35% of all Millennials non affiliate with any religion in other words when you ask them hey what religion are you a part of they just check the box none that's why researchers called you that and if you're a nun if you feel stuck in the middle Here's what we've discovered so far. First of all, you have to recognize you can't move away from something without moving towards something else. So even though you want to just stay in the middle and stay neutral and say, I don't want anything to do with either part, the reality is that's not possible. Because you're always moving one direction or another. You walk away from God, you're moving towards atheism, you walk away from atheism, you're moving towards God, even if you haven't embraced either one of those. And one of the things we discovered, and this is important to recognize, that the God or the, the view of God or the version of Christianity you walked away from It might not even be an accurate view or version of God. You may have walked away from a God who doesn't exist to begin with, who doesn't exist anyway. And if you did, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You ought to let go of those gods. But now you're an adult, and part of my agenda for this series, I've told you this, part of my agenda is to do whatever I can to encourage you, to to hopefully entice you, to reevaluate or um, to reconsider Christianity, to turn around and to walk back because this view of God or this version of Christianity you walked away from, it may have been unnecessary for you to walk away from Christianity because that was a bad view, and there might be an adult view of God, an adult version of faith that you would find appealing that you should explore. It's just never been presented to you before, and you've, you've got to let go of those somebody told me so gods in order to evaluate it. Now, the other thing, and this is what we talked about last week if you weren't with us, the other thing that people tend, causes people to walk away from God or faith is what we call a Bible tells me so faith. And a Bible tells me so faith just looks like this. At some point in your past, maybe when you were a teenager, maybe as a college student or a young adult, but at some point in your past, you went to a pastor or a priest, to a parent, somebody who you viewed as an authority on religion, and you asked some great questions. You asked some great questions about, well, the Bible says this, but how does that stack up against this? And, well, how do we know that's true? And what about, and what about? They were great fact-based questions, and all you got were faith-based answers. Every time you ask a question, they look back at you and they said, well, we just believe that because the Bible says. We just believe that because the Bible says. The Bible says so, the Bible says so. Well, how do I know it's true? Well, because the Bible tells us that the Bible is true. And you're thinking, okay, but that's kind of circular reasoning. But that's, that's all you were told. You were never given any more information. You were never given uh, anything any deeper than, well, the Bible says so. That's why we believe what we believe. And that may have worked when you were a kid, but now you're older. And so you walked into a college class or you watched a documentary or you read a book or maybe you just had some life experiences where there were some problems pointed out. There were some things that didn't seem to add up to you, and you decided, well, if all they've got in terms of the credibility for their faith is a blind faith in the Bible, well, I'm just not going to hold on to that anymore. And so you walked away. And the good news, again, is this. You walked away from Christian, Christianity unnecessarily because the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith is not the Bible. Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible. It's actually the opposite. The Bible exists because of Christianity. The foundation of our faith is something way better than, well, there's this religious book with these teachings and we just believe everything's true. No. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection. It's the resurrection. It's an event that happened that was so extraordinary that it changed everything, And there were eyewitnesses who wrote accounts of what they saw, heard, and experienced. And those accounts, those documents, ended up being collected and becoming part of what we call our New Testament, which is part of our Bible. But the the foundation is nothing more than the resurrection. Or another way I could say it is this. People followed Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection. Just stop and think about this for a minute. This is important. People followed Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection. Before the resurrection, after Jesus was crucified, nobody believed who was who he said he was. Nobody was trying to start a Jesus movement. He was in a tomb, dead, and they all decided, you know what, we were wrong, we were wrong, we were wrong. He is not who he claimed to be. And they all ra- ran and they all fled. In other words, on that Sunday morning... There was not a crowd of people gathered around the tomb going, this is going to be so awesome. We're about to start Easter. Like, it's, it's going to be a brand new tradition. We're all going to be here to see it. Easter is going to be practiced forever, forever, forever. People will know they can start wearing white once Easter happens. It's going to be great, you know. There wasn't a big crowd of people out there. Ryan Seacrest was not going. Let's all count down together now: ten, nine, eight. Oh, there goes the stone. It's, it's none of that was going on. The only people outside the tomb were Roman soldiers who the Pharisees had asked Pilate to put there just in case somebody wanted to steal the body. That was it. Nobody expected a resurrection. Nobody expected no body in the tomb. This was a surprise to all of them, and yet from that point on, they had no doubts. From that point on, everything changed for them. From that point on, they spent the rest of their lives going place to place, not teaching what they believed. This is such a key distinction. Not teaching what they believed. Not going around saying, hey, Jesus taught us some really great principles, so let me, you know, let me show you these, and then let's all order our lives around them and start a religious movement. No, no. They just went from place to place telling people what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had experienced. That's how Christianity Began And that's why people followed Jesus after the resurrection. It was because of nothing other than the resurrection. Now, here's why that's so important. And here's where I want to turn this discussion. Here's what I want us to talk about for the next few minutes. That is important because you need to understand this. You need to understand that we become followers of Jesus through faith, not because of faith. We become followers of Jesus through faith, Not because of faith. In other words, when we follow Jesus, following Jesus is not about putting faith in faith or belief in belief. It's not about taking a blind leap of faith. Well, there's a religious book, and it says this, and there's not really any evidence or proof, but I'm just going to believe because I'm supposed to believe because the Bible says so. That is not how people become followers of Jesus. Now, there is some faith involved. And the reason there's some faith involved is because you and I do not live in the first century and we did not get to see Jesus with our own eyes. Now just stop and think about this. How much faith did it require for Peter, Andrew, Matthew, James, John, Mary, Salome, Mary Magdalene, all the other 500 plus people who said they saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion? How much faith Did it take for them to believe in the resurrection and to follow Jesus? I will answer it for you. Zero. Zero. Because they looked him in the eye. They had lunch with him. They had breakfast with him. They had conversations with him. They had dinner. It required zero faith. He was standing right in front of them. We don't have that luxury. So does it require a little bit of faith on our part? Absolutely. We are followers of Jesus through that faith. But here's the good news. It requires some faith to believe anything. It requires some faith to believe practically anything. So that's nothing unusual. But it is not a blind leap of faith. And Jesus never said, if you want to follow me, I just want you to put faith in faith or belief in belief. Just have blind faith and trust. He never did that. Why can we trust and why can we believe Jesus and what he said? He actually gave us proof. He didn't say, just have blind faith in me. He gave us evidence. There are at least three pieces. There are probably more we could talk about, but I don't have much time here, so I want to give you three pieces real quick of why we, we can believe what Jesus said is true. The first one is the fact that he performed miracles. Now, when Jesus performed a miracle, it was very strategic. Jesus could have done miracles every single day. There was so much need in the first century. Jesus could have done a miracle, you know, multiple miracles every single day, but he was strategic about the miracles he did, and those miracles were never to show off they were always simply to validate his claims of who he said he was. So when he healed a blind man or fed 5,000 with a few fish and loaves or walked on water or any other miracle that these eyewitnesses documented and said, yep, we all saw it happen, it was not for his own benefit. It was to validate, hey, you can trust me, you can believe me. I am who I claim I am, just look at what I'm doing right now. That was one of the pieces of evidence he gave us. A second one, which is hard for us to understand in the 21st century, but it was he was a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. And the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, but the Jewish scriptures are a huge piece of evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Now this is what got him in so much trouble. Because Jesus would look at his first century Jewish people and he would say, hey, our Jewish scriptures, guess what? They all point to me and they're all about me. You know that they've all pointed to a Messiah, and we believe a Messiah is coming. Well, guess what? I'm here. All of our Jewish scriptures, they point to me, they're about me. I'm the fulfillment of them all. This is part of what got him crucified. Because the Pharisees would immediately cry out, that is blasphemy, you cannot be the fulfillment of our Jewish scriptures. But Jesus said, nope, I am. Now, if you're interested in this, if you're interested in this, I'll give you one passage from the Jewish scriptures you ought to read. It's found in Isaiah 53. Just read this one chapter, Isaiah 53, and ask yourself, who does that sound like it describes? Now, what's fascinating is Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And when you read it, you see if it doesn't sound exactly like Jesus. So he did miracles to validate, and he fulfilled the Jewish scriptures, which validated who he said he was. But the ultimate one and the one that trumps all the others it's what I've said before. He predicted his own death and resurrection, and then he pulled it off. And it, at that point, all of his Jewish followers who, again, we don't think of it this way, but these Jewish followers, they had doubts. They had questions. They weren't always confident that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But after the resurrection, everything changed. And they said, we don't have any doubts anymore. Now, all of that matters for this reason. Because if Jesus If you can believe Jesus, if you can trust Jesus, if Jesus gave us evidence, you don't have to put faith in faith and just take his word for it, but if there's actually evidence that you can evaluate that points to or validates Jesus' claims of who he was, then it also means this for you. It means what Jesus said about God can be trusted. What Jesus said about God can be trusted. Now, here's why this is so important, and this is where I want to turn the discussion today. If you are somebody who's a nun, you're stuck in the middle, and you're wanting to turn back and you're considering reevaluating faith or Christianity or God again, you know where you have to start? You have to start with the question, well, what is God like? Because you walked away from a view of God that was probably bad. So now you need to know, you're an adult now, Like you're, you're going to explore this for yourself, so now you need to know for yourself, okay, what is God really like? And Jesus said, hey, you can trust me and you can trust what I say about God. Jesus becomes the best source any of us have, the most credible source any of us have to understand what God is like. He's where we have to turn to answer that question. Now, before I jump into this, and you know, in the spirit of complete honesty and transparency, Jesus did more than just say, "Hey, I know what God's like and I'll tell you." Jesus made claims Much greater than that. Jesus actually claimed he was God. Matter of fact, he did that on more than one occasion. There could have been no uh, misunderstanding about, well, he didn't really mean that. No, he said it several times. Which takes off the plate, by the way, our ability to look at Jesus and say, okay, I don't buy all of that, but he was a good teacher. He was a really moral man. I really like some of what he taught. No, no, you can't do that. Because somebody who claims to be God is either who he says he is, or he's nuts. One of the two. There's not really any middle ground. Like, good moral man is not a middle ground there. But he claimed to be God. He did it multiple times. John, who was one of his disciples, he records for us a few of those instances where Jesus claimed to be God. John heard him do it himself. Now, if you don't know much about John, this is kind of interesting. So John's one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He begins following in his teenage years at some point, okay? And he grows up and you know, he sees G- the empty tomb, he sees Jesus crucified, he sees the empty tomb, he sees all of that transpire, he sees Jesus alive again. And then John, as he you know, goes throughout his life, as you can imagine, everybody they encountered John said, tell us what Jesus was like, you were with him all the time, we want to hear stories, we want to hear stories. So John would write these letters to different groups of Christians and he would say, here's what Jesus was like, here's what I experienced, here's what I saw. He even wrote an account of Jesus' life tell, you know, that basically outlines a lot of the things that he experienced. Well, in the course of doing that, he got himself in a lot of trouble. If you were here last week, you remember I told you about the Jewish wars and how uh, Vespasian uh, occupied Israel and eventually laid siege to Jerusalem. We talked about this, and then he was called away to Rome. He became emperor of Rome, so he left his son Titus, and in August 6th of 70, Titus breached the walls of Jerusalem, and then Titus eventually became emperor of Rome. Well, in John's later years, The emperor of Rome was a man named Domitian. I don't know if you know much about Domitian, but he was the younger son of Vespasian. He was the younger brother of Titus. So after Vespasian's emperor, then Titus' emperor, then Domitian's emperor, and one of the things Domitian is known for is his persecution against Christians. He had so many Christians executed. And eventually he has John arrested, but he does not execute him. John is the only one of the 12 disciples, closest disciples of Jesus, that wasn't executed. Now, the reason Domitian decided not to execute John was because he realized, he noticed, every time I execute a Christian, 10 more pop up. Every time I execute a Christian leader, 100 more pop up. Like, this is not working. This isn't slowing down this movement at all. So instead, with John, he thinks, I'm not going to kill him. It's not going to help the cause. But I've got to shut him up. He's got to quit telling people he saw Jesus alive. So Domitian has John sent to the Isle of Patmos to be exiled. And that's where John spent most of his later years. And it, but in the course of this, John got to correspond with a lot of different people, and so he wrote these accounts. And I want to read you out of the Gospel of John, this account of Jesus' life. What John said, Jesus told them about who he was and then what God is like. Let me just jump into it here, John chapter 14. This is Jesus talking, John says. Jesus says, if you really know me, he's talking to his disciples, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well to which I'm guessing the disciples, these Jewish boys, are looking at one another going, you got to be kidding me. Are you saying like you're equal with God? Nobody claims to be equal with God. You'd be be silly to do that. Jesus says, no, no, I'm not not just claiming to be equal with God. It's worse than that. He goes on. From now on, he says, you do know him. You do know God and and have seen him. Okay, I'm not just claiming to be equal with God. From now on, Matthew, Peter, Philip, John, James, Look, look, look right here. From now on, I'm not just saying I'm equal with God. From now on, I just want you to know you know God. You do. You know God. And you've seen God, to which they're all going, did we miss something? Like, I didn't see God. No, I didn't see God either. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. Where was this moment, you know? So, so they're so confused. So finally, Philip has enough courage to speak up and basically tell Jesus, okay, we're not, we're not tracking with you, but you can't mean what, you, what it sounds like you mean, so, so you just help us out. Here's what Philip says to Jesus. Philip interrupts, and he says, Lord... Show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Okay, we're not tracking with all you're saying, but we do know you're really close to God. And so, as good Jewish boys, we think it would be awesome if there's a way that you could let us actually physically see God with our own eyes. That would be incredible. Could you set up a meet and greet? Or, you know, like a, he just drops in at dinner tomorrow night. Like, y'all are tight. So if you could figure that out, that'd be great. And we wouldn't need any more faith anymore, because we'd seen him, you know. To which, and don't miss this, to which Jesus looks back. And he says this, which had to have stopped them all in their tracks. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That is crazy talk right there. It is. You just stop and think about this. Imagine that you're one of these people who's deciding, okay, I want to figure out what God is like. And so you go to someone that's a friend of yours, and you say, hey, I'm trying to figure out what God is like. And you're just kind of telling them you're on this journey and you're going to reevaluate, you know? Imagine if they looked at you and said, well, hey, you don't have to worry about that. If you've seen me, you've seen God. You would say, what did you smoke this morning? That's what you would say, wouldn't it? I mean, it's like, no, only crazy people say stuff like that. So the disciples are standing there thinking, he really is saying what we think he's saying. And we don't, again... You think they just automatically believe. No, they did not automatically believe. They're scratching their heads going, we don't know if we can buy into that. You're telling us that you are God, that you're God in human flesh, that you are our heavenly Father who's come down and you're now in a body. That's what you're telling us. Jesus says, yeah, that's what. I'm telling you. Jesus goes on. He says, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me, to which they're all going, should we tell him no? I don't know if we should tell him no, but no, we don't really believe that. Jesus goes on. He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. He just keeps pounding this idea home. And then he says this, believe me, because he can tell they don't believe. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Now notice what he says next, because he knows they have doubts. He says, so, or at least, or at least, I know you're questioning. I know this is hard to believe. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. In other words, Jesus says, I am not asking you just to take my word for it. I want you to stop and think about all the evidence that you have seen me do. I want you to think about the miracles you have seen. I want you to think about the Jewish scriptures that are being fulfilled in front of your eyes. I want you to pay attention to the evidence that gonna, you're going to see. Ultimately, when I predict my own death and resurrection and pull it off, I want you to have faith and believe me. But it's not blind faith. It's not belief in belief. And I'm not asking you to believe in some big religious book. I'm asking you to believe in the evidence that I am presenting to you. And if you have enough faith to embrace that evidence, then you'll get it. And if you decide you don't want to embrace that evidence, that's your choice. But this isn't a blind leap of faith here. You just look at the evidence, and it'll lead you to the conclusion, I am who I say I am. And because of the evidence, what I am telling you about God, it can be trusted. I'm the most credible source you have because I am God and human flesh. You want to know what God is like? Look at me, listen to me, and watch me. That's what Jesus said. Now, if that's true and it is, if there's evidence and there is, then what Jesus said about God can be trusted which means if you're at a point where you're willing to reconsider, to reevaluate, maybe to restart your faith or to take a next, next step, here's the question you should be asking yourself. What did Jesus say about God? What did Jesus say about God? Because you need to know what God is like to form an adult view, an accurate view of God. Now, this is so hard for most of us, but just, just imagine this for a minute. What would it be like if you could have a clean slate, if you could push away all your preconceived ideas, notions, stereotypes, the, the different views of God that have been presented to you? Imagine you could just push all of that aside. And you could start with a blank piece of paper, and you could just look at Jesus, and you formed your view of God strictly off of what Jesus said about God. That's how you get an accurate view of him. Now, what I'm going to do at the end is I'm going to show you how to do that, because this is the most valuable thing you can do. I'm going to show you how you can figure out for yourself what Jesus had to say about God. But first, I want to give you a little help, okay? I'm going to give you a head start. Jesus said a lot of things about God, but I'm going to give you three to start. So as you go home and hopefully do this on your own, I'll tell you how in a minute, but as you go home and do this on your own, you'll already have the ball rolling, okay? Let me give you three of the things that Jesus taught us God is like. The first one is this. God is spirit. This is what Jesus taught. The God is spirit. One day, John tells us that Jesus was having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. Now, this was unique, and we won't get into this, but this is unique because Jews and Samaritans despised each other, and they wouldn't talk, and a Jewish rabbi wouldn't talk to a woman. There's so many cultural norms Jesus was breaking. But he's having this conversation, and what's so interesting about the conversation is a Samaritan woman doesn't realize who Jesus is. So she is actually arguing with Jesus about what God is like. That is an argument you are never going to win. But she didn't know any better, so she's going back and forth. And here's how Jesus describes God to her. It's pretty interesting. He says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now, here's why this fascinates me. Because what Jesus just did, in a simple way so a first century woman could understand, is Jesus just told us, in saying God is spirit, Jesus just told us that God is timeless, spaceless, And immaterial. That's what a spirit is. Jesus said, Hey, you need to understand something about God. He is spaceless, he is timeless, and he is immaterial. Now, here's why that fascinates me so much. Because if you talk to most scientists today about the origin of this universe, they will say this If we could take everything going on in the universe and we could hit the rewind button and we could take it all back, all back, all back to the very beginning, it would all come back to what they call a singularity. This single moment in time when the entire universe began, and something came out of nothing. And then these scientists will tell you, most of them will, that they believe in order for something to come out of nothing, that singularity was started by what they call a first cause, a first cause. And they will tell you that first cause could not have been confined by time, space, or matter, because time, space, and matter didn't exist. That first cause had to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. Well, go figure. Jesus told us 21 centuries ago, oh, there is a God who is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. He is outside the laws of nature. He is otherworldly. He is supernatural, or if that word freaks you out, he is supranatural. And he started it all. Now, that's all interesting, but that's not really very helpful, is it? Because, like, oh, great, God is spirit. Like, you can't wrap your arms around that, literally or figuratively. Go figure. So it's like, okay, this is not really very helpful. Like, great, God's spirit. How does that help me? Well, Jesus isn't done. In another place, he says this. He teaches us that God is father. Here's why this matters. Because he wants us to know God is not a spirit who's distant and detached. God is a father who is relational and who is personal. One day, um, Jesus' disciples are watching him pray. And I'm sure they've been doing this for quite a while and having these conversations behind the scenes, but nobody wanted to say anything to Jesus about it. But they were watching him and they were going, man, the way Jesus speaks or the way Jesus prays, like everything is different. It's so different. The way Jesus prays, when we pray, our minds wander. When we pray, we fall asleep in the middle of our prayers. He prays, and it's like it's so personal, and like he's having this conversation. Like, how is he doing that? And these are good Jewish boys who were taught how to pray, but they realize Jesus is doing it way differently than we do. So they finally work up their courage, and they say, Hey, Jesus, we want you to teach us to pray. Like, we know how to pray, but teach us to pray like you pray. And Jesus, you you know what happens next. Jesus looks at them, and he teaches them. With the Lord's Prayer. This is where he introduced the Lord's Prayer. We've all heard this whether you're a church person or not. But how does the Lord's Prayer start? It starts like this. He said to them, when you pray, say, everybody together. What's that word? Yeah. This, is such, this was such a foreign concept to them. Jesus said, guess what? Your God invites you to call him Father. Your God, yes, he is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial but he is not distant or detached. He is not an intimidating presence. Your God invites you to call him Father, and your God relates to you and views you like a perfect father would. So maybe if you're trying to restart your faith or you're willing to reevaluate, maybe the place to start is right here with this word. Maybe you should drive home and in the car ride or... Maybe tonight, when you're sitting on your back deck or you're laying, you know, on your bed, wherever you are, maybe you should just look up and say, "Okay, I hadn't done this in a long time, and I'm not even really sure how to do it. So here's all I got: Hi, Father. Amen. Like I'm done. I don't know what else, but but I'm gonna start right here. That's a great place to start because your God invites you to call Him Father. That's how. He wants to relate to you. And then a third thing that Jesus taught, and John told us this, the same John who was thrown on the Isle of Patmos by Domitian, John, when he was writing one of his letters to a group of Christians explaining to them what he learned from Jesus about what God is like, John told them, hey, guess what Jesus taught me? One of the things Jesus taught me is this, that God is love. God is love. This is so important. God, he, John didn't say God does love. A lot of people love. He said, God is love. In other words, John said, Jesus taught us that God is the objective standard of love. God is the very definition of love. Now, I want to take two minutes and I want to try to explain why this is so important to understand. And if this is confusing and you get lost, it's my fault, not yours, okay? It'll only be two minutes and we'll jump right back in. But let me start by explaining it this way We would all agree that shade requires the sun wouldn't we? Like, you can have the sun without shade, but you cannot have shade without sun. Shade always requires the sun. The sun has to necessarily pre-exist for shade to exist. Okay, you with me? Well, in the same way, in the same way, here's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that evil requires good. In other words, good must necessarily pre-exist evil. If there was no objective standard of good, then evil would not exist. And all I mean by that is this. If there were no objective standard of good, if you didn't know what good looked like, then you would never recognize evil, would you? There would be no evil if there was no good. There would just be is. It would just be reality. Like, whatever happened is what happened. And we wouldn't label it good or evil because there'd be no standard to measure, oh, no, 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 I know what good is, and that didn't measure up to good. That's evil. There'd be no standard, so there just wouldn't be anything. It'd just be reality. Just like shade requires sun, evil requires good. If there is no good, then you can't label anything evil. And in the same way, unlove requires love. If there is no objective standard of love, if you can't define what love is, and by objective standard I mean all people in all places and all times, you can't argue. This is love and it is true for everybody, no matter where you are or who you are. If you can't define what love is, then you do not know what unloving is. Unlove requires love. So just like the sun has to necessarily pre-exist for shade to occur, good and love have to necessarily pre-exist for evil and unlove to exist. And Jesus taught that God did necessarily pre-exist, and he is the objective standard for good and for love. In other words, the only way you know things are evil and not the way they ought to be, and that wasn't loving for that person, and nobody should be treated that way, the only way any of us recognize that in this world is because God is good and God is love, and we are measuring what people do based on him. Now, here's the other implication, and then we'll Move on. When you sorry, go back real quick. When you when you step into the shade, when you step into the shade, when you're outside and you get really hot and you step into the shade, you know what you're doing? Without even thinking about it, you are acknowledging the existence and power of the sun, aren't you? Well, anytime you call something evil or unloving, you are actually acknowledging the existence and the power of God, even if you don't believe in God. Because without God, you would never label anything evil or unloving. Now, if all of that's confusing, don't worry about it. Just come right back here, okay? That was my two minutes, all right? So we're done with that. The, the, maybe the more important question for you is this. You're going, well, if God is good and God is loving, then here's the question. Why is there evil in the world? Okay, if, it's a, if he's a good, loving God, then tell me. Why in the world is there evil in the world? That's what I want to know. This is a great question. This is, a, this is at the heart. Maybe you would say, why is there evil in my world? Because this is at the heart of why some of you walked away from faith in God and Christianity, isn't it? This is a great question. It deserves an answer. And there is an answer to it. And I think we ought to talk about it. Next week. Yeah, it's called a teaser, isn't it? Next week. Though you got to come back next week because, again... This is so powerful and this is at the heart of why so many of us have issues with God or Christianity because of things that have happened to us or to other people that we love that seem so evil or so wrong and wh- how could a good God let that happen? Okay, We're, I can't talk about that in the little time we have today. We're going to take all of next week to talk about that. You've got to come back. It's going to be so important. But, but, I want to give you one more question to think about over the next week, okay? Just to bend your brain a little bit. Not only are we going to talk next week about why is there evil in the world, I also want to talk about why do you know there is evil in the world. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Why do you know? Why would you look at that and say that is evil? The world shouldn't be that way. Nobody should be treated like that. Nobody should endure that. Why do you know there is evil in the world? Next week, we'll talk about those. Today, I just want to get you started thinking about, okay, Well, what does Jesus say God is like? And this isn't complete, but here's a starting point. He says God is spirit, God is Father, and God is love. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of homework. This is maybe the, if you would just do one thing throughout this whole series for me, this would be the one thing I would ask you to do. It's it's so important. I want to help you figure out how you can discover for yourself what Jesus said God is like. Because this is the starting point. If you're going to turn back and try to reevaluate faith or reconsider Christianity, this is where you have to start. And Jesus is your best source to know who God is and what he's like. So I'm going to give you some homework. There are four steps to it, but they're all really easy, okay? The first one is this. I want you to get a Bible. That's not going to be hard. Get a Bible. You can go to Bible.com or on your phone, you can just go to the App Store and search for the Bible app. It'll be absolutely free, and you'll have a Bible. So download a Bible or get a Bible on your laptop if you don't have one at home. If you got one at home, you know, blow all the dust off of it, three-layer, okay, and, you know, open that thing up, wherever that is. And then um, when you download your Bible app or whatever you do, you're going to see there are a bunch of different translations, they call it, of the Bible. It's just different ways people have translated the original, the original text, the original languages, just different wording. The easiest, as far as I'm concerned, one of the easiest wordings for you to understand is what's called the New Living Translation. It may say NLT. So you download that. You choose that um, version in the Bible app or at Bible.com because it'll be really easy to understand as you read it. And then once you've done that, here's what I want to get you to do. Go read the Gospel of John this week. It's only about 25 or 30 pages, you know, if you had a physical Bible, depending on the size of the print. It's not that long. It's not going to take you forever. So go find the Gospel of John. It's the account of Jesus' life that John, who is an eyewitness, who was there for it all, wrote down. And now here's the kicker. When you read the Gospel of John this week, read it through this filter or through this lens. Ask yourself this question. What do I learn about the Father from the Son? In other words, okay, as I'm reading this, what is Jesus telling me God is like? Because Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, watch me, look at me, Listen to me. What I say, that's what God would say. What I do, that's what God would do. The way I treat people, that's the way God treats people. The way I'm relating to people, that's the way God relates to people because I am God and I've proven it by my death and resurrection. So just start making notes. You already know three answers. God is spirit. God is Father. God is love. You'll discover all kinds of other things. One other thing. Some of you have been tracking with us through this series, and this has brought up all kinds of questions, and we've addressed some of the things that have been frustrations for you, but you have so many more questions, and you listen to me, and you kind of going, you wish you could you know, like raise your hand and say, yeah, but, and hey, I've got a question about this. You know, you just get, It's great questions, great questions. Well, here's what I want you to know. We have created an environment here for you to be able to ask those questions and have conversations about them. The environment is called starting point, starting point. And we're going to have right after this service, we're going to have a starting point meet and greet. Now, here's all that means. When you go to starting point, what you get to do is sit with a group of people who also have questions, who have doubts, who are curious, who are trying to re-explore, re-examine faith. You're going to sit with a group of people. You're going to get to hash all of that out and talk about a lot of those things. And you're going to be led by a couple of people who've been where you are and just are going to facilitate that conversation today today. Right after the service, no commitment, one-time deal. If you'll stay for 10 or 15 minutes right after this service, we're having a starting point meet and greet where you get to meet some of the other people who want to be a part of a conversation like this, and you get to meet the people who are going to facilitate that conversation. So here's, you know, you got your homework to read the Gospel of John. If you want to be an overachiever and get in the AP Who Needs God class, here's what you do, okay? You just, right after this is over, stop by the suite and ask for Ben. And Ben's going to take you to the starting point meet and greet, and you'll get all of your questions answered. And there's no commitment. If you don't want to go on and be a part of a starting point group, you don't have to be. But I'm telling you, you will find this to be the most helpful thing you could possibly do if you're ready to turn around and start reexamining or re-exploring faith. What Jesus said about God can be trusted. And you're an adult now. You're an adult now. And the version of faith or the view of God you walked away from, you probably should have walked away from. But that doesn't mean there's not one that's appealing. There doesn't mean there's not one that's true. There doesn't mean there's not one that you wouldn't want to embrace if you knew it. Jesus says, I can point the way. You can trust what I say about God. The question is, will you give the effort? Will you give the time? to turn around, and to start exploring for yourself. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us the wisdom to know what to do with this, and then the courage to do it, the courage to sit down this week, to read John's account, and even if we don't believe it's all true, just to read it because it's so fascinating to see what an eyewitness had to say about his experience with Jesus. Help us have the courage to ask the question, okay, what am I learning about the Father from the Son? What am I learning about the God of Jesus from Jesus? Give us the courage to go to a starting point meet and greet and to give the time just to spend the next few weeks with some other people who are in the same you know, stage of life and phase of faith that we are, just to be able to sit and talk about these things, a safe place to have some discussions because those questions that we have, they do deserve a conversation. So help us to have enough courage to do what we need to do to explore, even if it's hard. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.